<laughs> Good to be back. And I, uh, I just, I so much appreciate y'all's flexibility and willingness to, to help out a sister church and a, a brother pastor and, and by extension, the pastors that he trained over in Africa. So just thank you so much for your flexibility and willingness to, to be inconvenienced, to, to, to help out others. So I'm very thankful and to, to help out and in, encourage me. I'm, I'm thankful for y'all's continued support and uh, um, the opportunity that y'all give me to, to preach and teach. And thank you also for your faithfulness at the Winter Bible Study and, and consistent attendance there. And just thank y'all so much for um, uh, seeing the kingdom and the, the bigger the bigger things beyond the walls of our church. And so I appreciate y'all so much. And, uh, and also don't forget Saturday morning, I think it's 10 o'clock. Is it 10 o'clock what I said? 10 o'clock, we'll meet here, probably over here with uh, Brother James and just a time of question and answer, getting to know him and uh, exploring the possibilities of, uh, of conversation. Really, all we'll decide next week is if we want to have conversations, you know, if we want to talk about, we, we won't make any big decisions, but if we want to continue to talk about the possibility of bringing our two churches together. So prayerfully consider that this week. Think about things that you would need to know, be concerned about, and uh, Bring those questions on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, and we'll we'll meet with Brother James. Um, yes. To this chapter 15, we're going to be looking today at uh, spiritual warfare as Paul is uh, uh, goes into the temple and uh, a riot breaks out, and he ends uh, being carried away in chains. And so, uh, so we're going to uh, think about uh, spiritual warfare and uh, spiritual battle and conflict. And in uh, Exodus 15, we see that the, the Lord is a warrior, a man of war. And we certainly uh, need his strength in order to stand in the day of battle. We do not stand in our own strength, but we stand in the strength of the Lord our God. And so Exodus chapter 15, a song after they had come across the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh had been destroyed by the Lord, then their response was to sing this song. Exodus 15, 1, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He has chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Skip down to verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pause this morning to, to give you praise. To give you thanksgiving for who you are. And Lord, we thank you that in mercy you have led forth the people 
that you have redeemed, that you guide us in your strength to a place of rest and comfort. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the battle that was won on the cross at Calvary where Jesus took our sin and took the punishment that we deserve and then crushed the head of Satan as he walked out from that tomb alive, winning forever the victory and redeeming his people to himself. Lord, we thank you for the the great victory that has been won. But Lord, we also recognize that in in the in-between time, between his first and second coming, we're still in enemy territory. The battle still rages. And Lord, we uh, are called to, to stand and to to fight and to advance your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us the grace to do that in your strength and in the power of your Holy Spirit as we seek to stand on the day of temptation, as we seek to do battle with sin and with evil and to put it to death. Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand in your strength and grant us victory. And Lord, we give you praise because you are a man of war and the victory has been won. The victory is complete. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to endure and persevere as we look forward to the day when Christ will return and make everything right and destroy his enemies forever. And so Lord, help us as we seek to worship you this day. May we worship you in spirit and truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnal and turn to him all right now as we continue to worship take your bibles and turn with me to the book of acts acts chapter 21 acts chapter 21 took a three three week break looking at parables of our lord in the uh, book of luke and now we return to our study of acts and you remember the setting paul had set his face toward jerusalem uh, primarily to take the gift that had been received from the uh, Gentile churches that he had planted in Asia and other places, and uh, uh, Acacia and Macedonia, those Gentile churches took up a collection for the impoverished believers, the poor church at Jerusalem, and Paul went to deliver that gift, even though in every town that he was in, they warned him. They warned him that chains and tribulation awaited him, and his friends begged him not to go to Jerusalem knowing that he would be bound there. And uh, yet Paul uh, knew the calling of God upon his life. He knew the mission that he was on, and he set his face toward Jerusalem and determined to go there. And when he arrived, uh, he was told by the elders that there were myriads of Jews that had heard lies about him, that he had uh, discredited the temple, uh, went against the law, and they told him to show his obedience to the law by taking these four men who had taken a Nazarite vow, going into the temple, paying their fees, making the sacrifices, so that he might show that all those things that they had heard about him, about uh, uh, discrediting the law, the temple, and the people, uh, were lies. Well, here today we see the response to that. And uh, uh, it didn't work out the way the elders had hoped or planned. But Paul is... Well, first he is beaten almost to death, arrested, taken in chains. And so we look at that today as we look at the battle, the spiritual warfare, and as we seek to know ourselves and to know the enemy so that in the day of strife, the day of conflict, we might stand, stand in the power of God, the strength that God provides, the power of his Holy Spirit, and the armor that he gives us 
that we might have victory in the day of temptation, the day of evil, and the day of spiritual battle. And so we look at that and we uh, seek today to better know ourselves and to better know the enemy. So uh, Acts 21, Acts chapter 21, verse 26. Luke, the only Gentile writer of a book of the Bible, as far as we know, writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and records the events that happened at the temple, the beating and the arrest of Paul the Apostle. Acts 21, 26, the word of the Lord says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried out one thing, some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. And Lord, we thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, even now, that you sent to lead us into truth, the spirit of truth. And Lord, may he lead us into the truth. May he help us to rightly divide this portion of your word to us. May he help us to rightly understand it and to rightly apply the truth, the principle of this passage to our lives today. Lord, may we be comforted by your presence. May we be strengthened by your spirit. May we be encouraged by your truth. And may we be empowered by you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on the day of evil, in the midst of conflict, Lord, may we be empowered to stand. To stand and to trust in the victory that has already been won by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, many years ago, as I was a young military intelligence officer, one of the books that I had to read as part of my training was a book entitled The Art of War. And in that book, The Art of War, the author said, uh, talked about knowing yourself and knowing the enemy. 
And the author said, if you know the enemy and yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. But if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will be defeated in every battle. And so that author said, know the enemy and yourself and you will win. You will have victory. And this passage that we look at today helps us to understand a little bit about ourselves and certainly to understand our enemy and the tactics that he uses in spiritual battle. And this passage is really a turning point in the book of Acts. Up to this point, since we've seen Paul's conversion in uh, uh, Acts chapter 9, at that point, Paul became a powerful preacher of the gospel. Paul uh, went from town to town where Jesus was not known, and he proclaimed the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And believers, people believed and repented of their sin and were baptized, and Paul established churches raised up elders in those towns, and then went to the next town where he was not known. Paul was free, and he went from town to town, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and then on his subsequent journeys, he would plant new churches, but he would also circle back to the old churches to encourage them in their battle, to encourage them to persevere and endure, even in enemy territory, and he went back to them to to help them to grow in their faith and to mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. So up to this point that we've known Paul, he's been free. But from now on, Paul will be in prison. He will be a prisoner. He will be in chains. And we've seen that this is part of the Lord's plan and the Lord's will. He is is imprisoned, but yet even though he is imprisoned, he will still be a preacher. He's going to preach to this mob in our text next week. He will preach to the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. He will preach before Roman governors. And ultimately, he will appeal his case to Caesar. And he will preach to the Praetorian Guard that uh, guards him in Caesar's house. And all of Caesar's house will hear the good news of Jesus. And so this passage shows us the transition from Paul's freedom to Paul's imprisonment. We see how he comes to be arrested, why he is arrested, why he is put in chains, why he becomes a prisoner. And we also see this, this text as a, as a text of encouragement. You know, we studied through Ephesians this week in uh, the, the winter Bible study, and, and Paul told the Ephesians, you know, not to be ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed of my chains, and don't lose heart because of my tribulations. And so this passage shows us clearly why he was arrested so that we may not be ashamed of him and that we may not lose heart in the face of his tribulations. And this passage also helps us to know the enemy and to see the tactics that he might use so that we can be on guard against the way that he attacks. And we can also guard our own hearts to make sure that we do not fall prey to the enemy and that we actually become instruments in his hands. And so this passage helps us to do what the author of the Art of War says, helps us to know ourselves and our enemies so that we might have victory in every battle, that we do not need to fear a hundred battles if we know ourselves and we know the enemy. And so that's what we see in this passage. We see the enemy and we see some of his tactics that he used to end up uh, imprisoning the Apostle Paul. And so let's look at, uh, well, first let's answer the question, who is the enemy? 
Who is the enemy? Well, Paul had been told that there, there were false prophets, false apostles, and they had defamed Paul, and they were telling the myriads of Jews that were coming to Christianity in Jerusalem that Paul opposed the law, that, that, uh, uh, that uh, he taught the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. These false teachers came, and they had uh, spread rumors and lies about Paul. And so the elders said the way to uh, show people, these new Jewish believers, that that's not true. We've got these four men who have taken a Nazarite vow, and the time of their purification is at hand. So take these men, go into the temple, pay their fees, make the sacrifices, purify yourself, go into the temple, and show that these things about you are lies, that they're not telling the truth, that you honor the law, and you yourself are going to pay for these men and their purification and their fulfillment of this Old Testament Nazarite vow. And so when Paul does that, we see that it uh, doesn't really work out the way the elders had anticipated. Instead, a riot breaks out, and we see in verse 27, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia saw him in the temple and stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And so the Jews from Asia, you know, Ephesus was in Asia. And many of the churches where Paul had planted were in Asia. And he would go into the synagogues. He would preach to the people. The Jews would uh, come against him. He would go into the marketplace. And then they would get the crowds up and they would run, run Paul out of town. We've seen that as we've gone through the book of Acts. Now those same Jews from Asia have now come to Jerusalem. And what do they do? They stir up the crowd. They stir up the mob. And so we read this text... And on the surface, we might say that the enemy are these Jews from Asia. Or we might say that the enemy is this mob, this crowd. But if we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, then we see that these people are not the enemy at all. They are simply instruments in the hands of the real enemy. Paul will write to Ephesus, a church in Asia where he pastored a long time. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul will write to them, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not human. The Jews from Asia are not his enemy. The Jewish mob, the crowd, is not his enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers and the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so the enemy is not these Jews, it's not the mob, it's not the crowd. The enemy is Satan, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of darkness, the one who rules this sinful age. He is the real enemy. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came and he, he came and he died on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve. God raised him from the dead and he conquered sin and death and he conquered Satan but he ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of God. And now those who come to Jesus in repentance and faith are here in enemy territory, still ruled by Satan. And we are here to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to advance the kingdom, and to kick down the gates of hell and set captives free. But Satan, the ruler of this present age, though he is ultimately defeated, he still lives to fight and to oppose the preaching of the gospel to oppose the setting of captives free. He is the enemy. 
He is the one against whom we fight. It is a spiritual enemy, Satan. And so we must have spiritual weapons and spiritual armor to defeat him. We cannot defeat him with flesh and blood. We cannot defeat him in our own strength. Satan is the enemy, not the Jews from Asia or the Jewish mob. In fact, Paul says that those Jews, the mob in Jerusalem, they're not the enemy, but they're prospects. They're simply instruments in the hand of the enemy that need to be set free, that need to hear the gospel, that need to hear that they can turn from their sin and find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again to new life, everlasting life. The Jews from Asia and the Jews in Jerusalem and this crowd, they are not the enemy. They are instruments in the hand of the enemy. In fact, Paul will write about these. He says, I suffer great anguish and grief of heart for my countrymen, for my brothers in the flesh, these Jews in Asia, Asia those Jews in Jerusalem, his, his countrymen, his brothers by the flesh. He grieves for them, even to the point that Paul says, I wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for my brethren, that they might come. So Paul does not see these Jewish people this mob, this crowd is the enemy. He sees them as people who need to be set free from the enemy's clutches, the enemy's grasp. They are simply instruments, tools in the hand of the real enemy, the power, the ruler of darkness of this age, the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is the devil. He is the enemy. And in this text, we see... Uh, two of his tactics. We want to know the enemy and we want to know how he attacks so that we might be able to anticipate and to, 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 to stand and also that we be on guard, that we are not susceptible to his tactics and actually end up becoming instruments in his hands ourselves. And so the enemy is Satan. And in this text we see two of his tactics. The first is lies. The devil is a liar. The devil is a father of lies. When Satan lies, he speaks his native tongue. And so we see the enemy using these people, but using lies. So after the seven days, Paul is there in the temple with these men who had taken the Nazarite vow. The day of purification had ended, and the Jews from Asia saw him in the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all people everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And so there we see falsehood. The enemy is a liar. In fact, Jesus says about Satan, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. He has been a liar from the beginning. One of the tactics that the enemy uses is lies. Untruth. And we see that against, uh, against Paul. And actually we see it a couple ways. First there is exaggeration. Hyperbole. 
You know, uh, to use exaggerated la language sometimes can, can incite, can, can raise emotions. And that's what they begin about Paul in verse 28. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all people everywhere. Now that is an exaggeration. That is hyperbole. That is not true. Paul has not taught all people everywhere. He has taught many people in many places, but he has not taught all people anywhere. And so you can see how, how exaggeration is an untruth. It, uh, it, it might not be a lie, but it's just a, 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 an exaggeration language that can incite emotions, that can get people upset and inflamed, and so he begins with an exaggeration. This is the man who teaches all people everywhere, and then he gets to outright lies. What does he say that Paul teaches all men everywhere? He teaches against the people. And so here he's talking about the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the physical descendants of Abraham. They, they accuse Paul of teaching against the people, against the chosen people of God, against Abraham. And we see this lie, and we have gone through, we've gone through the book of Acts, and we have seen the sermons of Paul recorded. And we also know that Paul's custom is to, when he goes to a new town, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue where the people of God have gathered to worship God, to study the law, to pray for the coming of the Messiah. So he goes to the people through whom Messiah would come, who are praying for the Messiah to come and reading the law that speaks of the Messiah. And Jesus and Paul goes to, to the synagogue to tell them the Messiah has come. His, Jesus, his name is Jesus. He is Jesus of Nazareth, and that is the fulfillment of all the prophecies and promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, through the prophets, through our nation. Jesus is the answer, and so he calls the people to come to their Christ, to come to their Messiah, to come to their Savior. He is not against the people. He wants the people to repent and believe. And so he would go to the, to the synagogue, and he would preach, and he would only go into the marketplace when the people in the synagogue rejected him. If you will flip back just a few pages to Acts 13, we'll see an example of this. He goes to Antioch and Pisidia. In Acts 13, 42, he went to the synagogue. And they begged for this word to be preached on the next Sabbath. And then in verse 46 or 45, when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. He doesn't preach against the people. He speaks the word of God to them first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47, so, for, so the Lord has commanded us, and now he quotes Isaiah, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And so he is calling the people to fulfill the purpose that God had given them from the very beginning. To have the word of God, to bring the Messiah into the world, to be a light to the Gentiles so that all nations might be saved. People from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation to come into the kingdom of God. He is not preaching against the people. He is calling the people to fulfill the purpose that God had for them. And he is calling the people to embrace their Christ, their Messiah, their Savior, and to be saved from the wrath of God. 
But Satan lies. Paul is teaching all men everywhere against the people, against the people of God, against the Jews. That is a lie. Satan is speaking his native language. He's been a liar from the beginning. And the truth is not in him, so he does not stand to the truth. He lies. He says that Paul was preaching against the people. Not only does he say Paul was preaching against the people, but he says Paul is preaching against the law. He's telling all people everywhere to disregard the law of God. And that's a lie. And it's not what Paul teaches. Now, Paul does say that we cannot be justified by works of the law, that the law is not a means of salvation, but the law is good and right. And it tells us clearly what God requires of us. And the law also shows us that we fall short of his holy standard. The law shows us that we need a Messiah, that we need the Christ, that we need a Savior that would come through the Jewish people and fulfill the law and then fulfill the demands of the law against us as lawbreakers as he died on the cross for us. And so Paul is not preaching against the law. He is holding the law up. And he preaches the law to show these people that they need a Savior. God's law is good. It is right. But it is our schoolmaster. And it teaches us that we have fallen short and we need a Savior. But when we come to Christ in repentance and faith, then the law tells us how we ought to live as God's holy people. The law tells us what God requires of us. And when we've been born again by the Holy Spirit for the very first times in our life, we're free to obey the law. Before we come to Christ, we're free only to sin. We can't keep the law, but when we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we're free. Free to live according to the law. Paul does not speak against the law. In fact, he himself, as we've seen, took a Nazarite vow, an Old Testament vow. He himself purifies himself before he goes to the temple. He himself, and we'll see that he goes to the temple to pray, even after his conversion, and makes sure to purify himself before. He circumcised Timothy when Timothy joined their missionary team. Paul does not preach against the law, but he preaches the proper use of the law. And he also says that Gentiles do not have to, to uh, obey the law in order to be saved. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. But at the same time, the Jews do not have to stop observing the law when they are saved. They are free to do all of the traditions and all of the customs and all the things that they're comfortable with. We've seen that as we've gone through the book of Acts. But what, is, what does Satan do? Satan lies. Paul's teaching everybody everywhere against the law of God. And then the third lie that we see in this particular passage, he teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, and against this place. This place, the temple, the holy place. And I looked through the preaching of Paul uh, in the book of Acts. I looked through his epistles and his letters, and I could find nowhere where Paul said anything derogatory or negative about the temple. Now, he knows that the sacrifices there are obsolete because Jesus has uh, performed the once and for all sacrifice. But Paul goes to the temple to pray after his conversion. He purifies himself before he goes to the temple. He purified himself before he took these men there. He recognizes the symbolic value of the temple and the holy place, a house of prayer for all nations, God's presence in the midst of his people. And he sees the value and the importance of that to the Jewish people. And he honors that and he respects that. But Satan lies. There is no truth in him. 
He spreads lies against the apostle. Laws against, lies against the preachers of the gospel. He hates God. He hates his truth. He hates the good news of Jesus. And he opposes it. And one of the tactics that he uses is lies. Exaggeration. Outright falsehoods. And then another way he lies is bringing the connecting of dots that don't go together. And so, uh, so he lies, he accuses them of speaking against the people, the Jewish people, the law of God, this holy place. None of those things are true. But then they go on and they, they use logic and reason to connect dots in the way that they want the dots connected to ultimately come out to their own purpose. So look what they say next. Furthermore, also in verse 28, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And so that is a serious charge. That is a charge that is punishable by death. If a Greek, a Gentile, went into the court of Israel to the temple, then there was, there was a sign there that said, if you come here, you only have yourself to blame for your death. And so bringing a Greek would mean death for the one who brought them and death for the ones who were brought. This is a serious charge. This is a capital offense, a, a crime punishable by death. And so they make this accusation. Well, what leads to this accusation? Verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And so they supposed that they had brought that he had brought him into the temple so you see what happens we see uh we see see dots connected well number one we saw paul in the city with a greek all right that's proposition number one proposition number two we saw paul in the temple with other people and so what do they do they put those two things together and they say because we saw Paul in the city with a Greek, and because we saw Paul in the temple with other people, then Paul, they come to the conclusion, Paul brought Greek people into the temple and committed this crime that is worthy of death. And so they, they put two dots together that don't necessarily go together. They made an assumption that ultimately went with the desires of their heart. And, you know, we have to be careful with this. We, are, we like to think that we're intelligent. And we like to think that we use sound reasoning and that we use logic. But sometimes, sound reasoning and logic is perverted by the desires of our own hearts. We want to reach a conclusion. We know what we think is true. We know what we believe. We know what outcome we want. And so we look at facts and we interpret those facts, not necessarily in light of what they say, but in what we want to conclude. We know what we believe, and we begin to look for evidence to, conform, to, to, to confirm our belief and in our, in our desire to get the outcome we want, we might put facts together that don't go together reasonably or logically or factually because we want to accomplish the purpose that we want. Well, that's exactly what happened. Paul was over here with a Greek. Paul was over here with other people. Therefore, Paul brought a Greek into the temple. So, so false reasoning, false logic, but ultimately it comes from the desire of evil hearts, wicked hearts, just looking to try to, to confirm what they already believe, what they already think is true, and they look for confirmation, and then they spread that. So 
So these Jews from Asia, not the enemy, but prospects, ones that Paul, Paul grieves over and is brokenhearted over and said hey, he would even wish himself a curse and cut off from Christ. If these people would come to Christ, they're not the enemy, but they're instruments in the hands of the enemy. The enemy's using them, and he's using them to spread lies, untruths, falsehood against the Apostle Paul. And the desire of their heart is to destroy him, to kill him, to take him into chains, to make him stop preaching. And so they look for evidence, and they spread these lies about Paul. So we see the first tactic of the enemy, lies, untruth, deception. He spreads lies, and we have to guard our hearts to make sure that we... How do, you, how do you combat a lie? With the truth. We've got to fill our minds with the truth and look, search our hearts and make sure there's not a, a, a desire, a preconceived idea, a desired outcome, and we're willing to believe lies in order to accomplish the desire of our heart instead of pursuing the truth, loving the truth, knowing the truth, speaking the truth, and wanting the truth to win. How do we combat lies? We combat lies with the truth. Where do we have truth? We have truth in the word of God. His word is truth. So we need to know ourselves, our susceptibility to desire certain outcomes and to be willing to believe lies or even construct lies or exaggerate in order to conform the desires of our heart instead of using truth, looking at facts, Sound logic, sound reason based on the truth so that we might come to a true conclusion. Guard your heart against lies. Well, the second tactic that we see Satan, the enemy, use in this passage is disorder. A mob. An out-of-control group of people. God is not a God of disorder. God is not the author of confusion. So what would you expect the enemy to do? Disorder, confusion, and to use that tactic. So these men lie. They cry out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And then verse 30, all of the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. All right, so they spread these lies, they exaggerate, they use inflammatory language, they lie, they present false evidence, and all of a sudden, the crowd is mobilized and enraged. Their emotions are heightened. And they begin to run after Paul. They grab him. They drag him out of the temple. They slam the doors of the temple. And they begin to beat him. And they almost beat him to death. If the Roman commander had not responded with the troops, it is, it is almost 100% sure that Paul would have been beaten to death right here. They're beating him. And you know, some of the people are the false prophets who spread the lies, instruments in the hands of Satan, have been lying about Paul all along, 
telling the, uh, the, 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 the Jewish converts in Jerusalem that Paul, uh, in, in verse 21, he teaches the, the Jews to forsake Moses. They ought not circumcise their kids. They ought not walk in the custom of their fathers, an outright lie. And then there were those who, who heard that lie, and they heard it over and over and over, and were, because you've heard it so much, you begin to believe it. And then you begin to look for evidence that what you've heard is true, and you want it to be true, so you put evidence together that doesn't necessarily go together. So there's those who are spreading the lies, those who have been hearing the lies, and now those who are convinced, and they see Paul in the temple with these other people. They saw him in town with a Greek. This must be true. All these things I've heard about Paul must be true. I've been hearing for people that I know and I respect, and I've been hearing these things. I've heard them over and over and over, and, and, they, and they must be true. And so some are convinced now, and they join in the violence. And then there are others who have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> there are those who come running. Oh, there's a riot. There's a fight. They're beating this guy to death. I'll just come in and join. And we see that to be true because when the commander tries to find out what happened, here, some people are saying one thing. Some people are saying another thing. They don't need, some people are joining. They don't know why. But there's a riot. And I've got violence in my heart, and here's a good chance for me to be violent and not get in trouble. There's a lot of people, and, uh, and so I can come in, and I can just join in, but I have no idea what we're fighting about. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but this, everybody else is beating this guy, so he must be worthy of death. I'm just going to jump in and beat on him, too. The mob mentality, disorder, confusion, started by the lies, and now there's people that are coming in and piling on and don't even know why. And so Satan uses disorder. He uses confusion to entice people to do what they might not do otherwise. Now, why is it that people will do something in a crowd that they would never do alone? You know, they feel like there's strength in numbers, strength in the crowd. Maybe truth is decided by majority rule. And if all these other people think it, it must be true. Or there's anonymity. I can get in the middle of a crowd and do things that are wrong and do things that are violent and, uh, and loot and steal and, build and, and, and beat and riot and not be held accountable because there's more of us than there are of the law enforcers. So there's anonymity, there's no responsibility, no accountability, and I can fulfill the desires of my evil heart in the midst of this crowd and I might do something in a crowd I would never do by myself because I feel safe in the crowd. That's why Satan will use disorder, confusion, a mob, a riot to entice people to do what they would never otherwise do. So he wants to attack the preacher of the gospel. He wants to attack the good news of Jesus. He wants to thwart the kingdom of God. And one of the weapons he uses is disorder, confusion, mob mentality, majority rule. And I've heard it, must be true. Or I haven't even heard it, but all these people are beating on this guy, so I'll just join in. I don't know why. That's what's going on in there. And so Satan uses disorder, confusion, a mob mentality in order to deceive and to do battle against the Word of God. And, and even way back in the Old Covenant, way back after the Ten Commandments were given, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 2, the Lord knows that... that uh, that, that he is not an author of confusion or disorder. He is orderly, but he knows that the enemy will attack through disorder. So what does he say? Way back in Exodus 23, verse 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. 
The Lord knows that it's easy to get in the middle of a crowd and to do things that you wouldn't do. He says, do not follow a crowd to do evil. Don't get into this mob mentality. Don't join in with the group that's doing something that is not right. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Don't compromise the truth just to get along. Don't say what you know is untrue. Satan uses lies and deceits just because that's the majority opinion. Stand for the truth. Stand for the truth and stand for order. And one of the ways that God has given to ensure order is through the magistrate, the, 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 the Roman commander. So now the whole city is in an uproar. And that gets the attention of the garrison commander. And he sends his soldiers and centurions to run down there. And that's what saved Paul's life. The pagan Roman commander and his soldiers, they run down and immediately the crowd stops beating Paul. And the commander <laughs> doesn't arrest the guys doing the beating. He arrests the one being beaten. He assumes, well, all these people are beating him up. He must have done something wrong. So he orders him put into chains and binds him and asks, who is this guy and what has he done? What are the charges? What is he accused of? This man is due, due process, due justice. There's an accusation against him. You are not allowed to take justice into your own hands and beat him to death. There's a process that we go through. Who is this man and what has he done? And then we see more confusion. Some people join in. They have no idea who he is or what he's done. They just join the mob. And others are spouting the lies. Some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And so the commander could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult. He commanded Paul to be taken to the barracks, taken to prison. He's already in chains. Now he commands him to be taken to prison. we got to get this guy out of here so we can sort out or at least disperse the mob so that we don't get in trouble with Caesar. We don't want to riot. The commander's there to keep the peace, to keep the mob from doing mob things. And so he orders Paul taken away, taken to the barracks. And the mob is so much, even with the Roman soldiers, the soldiers literally had to carry Paul down the stairs because of the mob. And so now Paul's in chains, being carried by the Roman soldiers, carried to prison. And the crowd keeps crying out, away with him. So, in this passage, we see who the real enemy is. The ruler of this present age, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the darkness. Satan is the enemy. And we need to know our enemy. We know who he is. Our enemy is not people. We do not fight against flesh and blood. Those lost people are simply instruments in the hand of Satan. And they're our prospects. And like Paul, we should say, you know, I have anguish of heart. I'm grieved for the sake of my countrymen, for those who are deceived, those who have been enslaved by Satan, those who are in bondage and need to be set free with the good news of Jesus Christ. Those people are not our enemies. The enemy 
is Satan himself who has taken them captive to do his will. We need to guard our hearts against seeing people as the enemy. We need to see them as people who need to turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus. As we look at this text, we also need to ask ourselves, you know, am I in the fight? Paul, Paul knew this was coming. Paul had been told in every city that chains and tribulations awaited him. And yet because of the call of God on his life to be his witness, Paul was willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'm willing to be bound, but not only that, I'm willing to die for Jesus in Jerusalem. Because he knew, he knew that for him to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I go to Jerusalem and that crowd beats me to death, well, they're just going to send me into the presence of my Lord, which is better by far. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that for you to live as Christ and to die as gain, first of all, is for you to live as Christ? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for your salvation? Have you turned back from the things of this world, the enticements of this world? Have you, have you died to your life in this world and left, as we sung about, left, left kindred and, and goods to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? It's for you to live Christ? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus? Have you been saved by his grace through faith in Jesus and him alone? And you trust Jesus to bring you to heaven? Well, then you can trust Jesus to bring you through tribulations and trials on this world. And then when the fight is over, when you fought the good fight to take you into his presence. See, Paul's willing to die because of his confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in the fight. He doesn't fear those who can kill the body because he knows the one who can take his soul into his presence. So we need to be in the fight and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in the fight with the strength that he brings. Are you in the fight? And do you know yourself? But you can't fight this fight by yourself. You cannot fight this fight in your own strength. Our battle's not against flesh and blood, and so we cannot fight it with fleshly weapons. You can't fight this battle with, with just reason and logic. You combat truth with lies with the truth. The truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sword of spirit. And you stand in the strength that Christ provides, in the strength of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual battle. We need spiritual armor and spiritual weapons to fight the enemy. And then finally, we need to guard our own hearts. We see the tactics of the enemy. And we see that even many of these myriads of Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, they heard the lies about Paul over and over and over and over again. They saw dots connected that shouldn't go to connected. And they saw the disorder. They saw the crowd. And many were deceived, caught up in the crowd, and did what they would not do by themselves. And so we need to know the tactics of the enemy so that we might be on guard and we might guard our own hearts. Am I believing a lie? Do I believe a lie just because I've heard it over and over and over again? It must be true. I've heard the law from somebody I trust, somebody I've known all my life. I heard this lie. And I hear it over and over and over and louder and louder and louder. 
And sometimes it's so easy for us to be captive, taken captive by lies. Because we hear them so many times. Instead of comparing the lie to the truth, we can allow ourselves to become instruments in the hand of the enemy by believing a lie. And by acting a lie. Or we can even allow ourselves to become an enemy by just joining the crowd. Believing falsely that the truth is determined by majority rule by popular vote. And if all these people are going that way, well, it must be right, it must be true, it must be good. I'll join the crowd. I'll join the mob. And contribute to the disorder, the confusion, the mob mentality. And if we're not careful, we, even though we're believers in Christ, we can become instruments in the hands of the enemy, tools, weapons that he uses to spread his lies, to spread disorder and confusion, and even to ultimately oppose the truth. So guard your heart. Think about things that are true. Compare everything that you hear with the truth. And don't be caught up by exaggeration, by untruths, by false reasoning, false logic, by mob mentality. But test all things by the word of God and stand for the truth and stand for order and righteousness. On the day of temptation, God gives us the weapons the strength to stand. Let's stand firm on the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you that it exposes who we are. Sinners saved by grace, but still susceptible to the enticements of the world. Still susceptible to unrighteous desires of our hearts just to get along to go with the crowd to drop out of the fight so we might experience peace or rest or comfort but Lord we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul who's not only willing to be bound but to die for your name Lord I pray that we would have that mentality that each of us would be able to say for me to live is Christ to die is gain and I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus to stay in the fight and Lord we pray that you help us to know the truth to be students of the truth to be so familiar with the truth that when we hear lies we they stand out as lies and we we're able to put them off and we're able to think about the things that are true the things that are noble the things that are right we're able to test all things by the truth of your word, the standard of your word. Lord, help us to be Bereans and to go to the word and make sure the things that we're hearing are true. And if they're not true, to expose the lie, to expose the false. And Lord, we pray that you help us not to join the mob. Not to fall for the lie that truth is determined by majority rule. Truth is determined by your revelation. And if nobody else believes it, it is still true. Regard us from that mentality. 
And Lord, on the day of temptation, the day of evil, the day of battle, empower us by your grace through our faith in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to stand. To stand on your truth. To stand for your truth. And to faithfully speak your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to encourage you to take out your hymnal and turn to hymn six. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.